as Bo just said, we've been before, we've been looking over the last few weeks um, at particularly at Revelation. We've been um, looking at the end times, the end of history, and saying kind of where are we in relationship to uh, these things that we read about uh, in Revelation, and where do we fit, and who cares, and why does it matter, and all those kind of things. We're actually going to take a little bit of a break this morning from Revelation. We are going to talk a little bit about the end, but nothing out of Revelation the past couple of weeks have been pretty um, heavy, and so we're going to move in a little bit of a different direction. I'm going to see if I can tie uh, a few things together that we've been talking about. This is starting in verse 9 of Matthew 24. This is Jesus talking. Uh, then you will be handed over to be persecuted, uh, he's talking to the disciples, and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Uh, a few weeks ago, we looked at this idea of tribulation, and I kind of said where I felt like we were on the timeline. I felt like if you look at Revelation 6 and the seven seals, I felt like we were in between. The, the fifth seal had been opened. The sixth seal had not yet been opened. And a lot of what we read in Revelation actually occurs after all of the seals have been opened. So in my opinion, a lot of that stuff we have not experienced yet. But we did say that a lot of what we read about in Revelation, we still experience now. It's just not as intense. The intensity is less and the scope is smaller. Uh, in Revelation, the scope is worldwide and the intensity is to the maximum. Uh, we don't necessarily experience that now, but a lot of the things that we do read about we will experience, and one of those things is tribulation, and we talked about that and how I felt like we would be sealed through the tribulation. We would not be kind of Star trek out of Earth before the tribulation. We're actually going to have to live through it, but it's not something that we have to do on our own. Um, in Revelation 7, we read that the, the Lord seals uh, his people before all of this bad stuff starts happening, and so we talked about that. You may remember that. In verse 9 that we just read, then you'll be handed over to be persecuted. That word is actually, then you'll be handed over to tribulation. So uh, you see that there's that idea again of tribulation coming up and that we are going to have to live through it. We said tribulation, it's when pressure is put on you and you're squeezed and we want to know what would come out of us when we were squeezed. And we said what we want to come out of us is the fruit of the Spirit. Sometimes that's not what happens and those are things in our heart that, needs, that need to change. But that's generally where we're headed. And we also talked about the wrath of God. And we said the wrath of God is specifically poured out on people who are not Christians. When we say we're saved, we're saved from the wrath of God. So if you're a Christian, you're not going to have to endure the wrath of God. If you're not, you will. You don't have to. Jesus has already endured that for you. But if you choose to pay your own bill, then you can. You don't have to. He's already written the check for that. If you want to uh, kind of, if you want to accept him and allow him to pay that debt for you, that's great. If not, you're going to have to pay it yourself. So... We talked about that and the wrath of God and how that is different from tribulation. Uh, last week we looked at um, deception. This was verse 11. Many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. And we talked about how uh, as we move closer to the end, there's going to be all of these false prophets, false Christ, false teachers. And we said that they were going to be really good. And that's the deal. If they walked around with 666 tattooed on their forehead, none of us would go for that. But they're going to they're be signs and miracles and wonders and all of this stuff is going to happen we talked about the Antichrist and the false prophet and all of that. And they're going to deceive a lot of people. And we said the best kind of defense against deception is to know the truth, who's Jesus. 
And if you know the truth, then you'll, be able, you'll know a counterfeit when it comes along. We don't need to try to figure out every scheme of the devil and every type of way he's going to deceive us. We don't need to figure out every counterfeit. All we need to know is the truth, and the better we know the truth, then when we experience something that's false, something will kind of go off in our hearts and we'll know. So those are a couple of things. There's three other things I want to look at this little passage. Um, verse 10 says this, At that time many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And then verse 12 says, Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. That's The church word for that is apostasy. That's people who have been Christians who then deny Jesus. And that's serious stuff. And really the whole reason I wanted us to even do anything with the end times and revelation was because of those two verses, because those honestly scare me to death. When you read that, it says, the love of most will grow cold. Many will turn away. And I wonder about us. Not, I'm not wondering about you individually, and it's not a judgment at all. It's just a question. I wonder about us and how many of us are in the most whose love will grow cold and how many of us are in the many who will turn away. And that, again, that's no judgment in that. That's not a slam on anybody's integrity or anybody's love for the Lord. It's just a question. When I read that, we've said before, we have to take what the Bible says seriously. And if it says many, then that to me means many. And if it says most, that to me means most. And we're, we're part of the people they're talking to. And so when I think about my job, honestly, as a pastor, and I wonder, you know, how many of us are going to, how many of us fall in that category? Are, are we any of the many and the most? And if we are, are there things that we can do now to prepare ourselves so we're not part of the many and the most when things get really tough? It's pretty easy to be a Christian in Marietta in 2008. There's some times where it might be slightly inconvenient, but that's really about it. It's pretty easy. None of us, we don't suffer really at all. We don't have to give up very much. Maybe you give some money to the church, so that's a sacrifice, and maybe you, you give up your Sunday mornings to come here so you're not sleeping late, but that's not suffering. You know, none of us really have to, and it's not bad. It's, thank, thankfully, that's where we live. But we don't know what it's like for somebody to say, suffer or be a Christian or deny Jesus and you don't have to suffer anymore. None of us that I know of have ever been faced with that choice. You can go to jail for Jesus or I'll, you, you can deny him and you won't go to jail. And we might all think, well, of course I'd go to jail. But none of us have ever been in those situations before, and so it's difficult. We talked about this a long time ago. You may remember we said, like, if Les and Ashley um, and Bo, because there's a trinity, so we'll say all of you guys are God, and y'all can decide who's the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. So let's say they're God. We said we're all born like this. We're born with our back to God, and most of us spend most of our life walking away from him. At some point, when you become a Christian and you repent, you turn towards the Lord again, and then hopefully the rest of your Christian life is spent walking towards God. We've talked about this before. We're born like this. And we said sometimes people, before they're Christians, they do this. They back up. They're being drawn to the Lord, but they haven't repented yet. Then at some point they do. And then this is where we want to head for the rest of our life. What Jesus is talking about, people whose love grows cold, and for people who turn away, it's they've already done this. They're born like this. They've turned around. They started walking. And then at some point they say, never mind. And they start doing this again. This is really bad. Really, really bad. Second uh, Peter two twenty through twenty two says it's better to have never done this than to have done this and then to do this. Uh, 
Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 says the same thing. It's better to have never turned around and started walking towards the Lord than to turn around and walk towards Him and then turn around and turn your back on Him again. This is serious business. I'm not sure there's anything you can do that's worse, or that any of us can do, that's worse than walking towards the Lord and then turning our back on Him and walking away. And that's what scares me so much about these verses is because it says that's going to happen to a lot of people. And it's going to be because of deception. We talked about that last week. Some people are going to be deceived into walking away. It's going to be through tribulation. Some people are just not going to be able to handle it. It's going to be too hard, and so they're going to turn and walk away. It also says, because the increase of wickedness, our love will grow cold, which to me is more this kind of gradual um, turning. It's not this defiant, at some point, I'm doing this, and now I'm doing this. It's more of a gradual, um, slow kind of drift away from the Lord, and before long, you're back is to him, and you're walking away, and you've forgotten the reality of what your life was with the Lord. And again, those things, I'm not trying to scare you. Those things just scare me, and they make me wonder, are we ready for that? Do we have a, the type of a, a love for the Lord that will sustain us through those type of times? And regardless of whether we're alive during this final tribulation when everything heats up and is really tough, there's still things that we experience now, I think, that fit into that. And I think for a lot of us, it's the love growing cold thing. I think that's where a lot of us fit. I don't know too many. There are people who just make a decision one day to defiantly kind of, you know, shake their fist at God and turn around and walk away. But I think more often than not, it's more this kind of gradual drifting as our love grows cold. There's about 200 million Christians right now, every day, who have to choose to obey Jesus, to follow Jesus, and suffer, or to deny Him and not. 200 million every day. There's, I think, somewhere about 165,000 people every year. Maybe it's 174. I can't remember the latest stat. 174,000, 165,000, somewhere like that, who are martyred for their faith, who literally are killed because they're Christians. That's going on. About 60 countries around the world are actively experiencing that type of persecution. That's called the persecuted church. And there's 200 million of those guys. We're not part of that group, obviously. And so for those guys, they're already experiencing some of what we're talking about. They're already having to make these decisions. They're already being squeezed, and they're having to choose, well, what am I going to do? Am I going to choose my life, or am I going to choose the Lord? Am I going to choose my family, or am I going to choose the Lord? My job or the Lord? My freedom or the Lord? My paycheck or the Lord? All of those things that eventually, Revelation says, we'll have to experience. You all remember last week when we read Revelation 13, that was that one of the nastiest chapters in the Bible about the Antichrist and then the false prophet and all of the things that are going to happen. You maybe remember that, and Christians aren't going to be able to buy and sell, and it says whoever's going into the captivity, into captivity he will go, and whoever's going to be killed by the sword, by the sword he will be killed. It's just a real negative chapter painting this picture of what's going to happen for this very short period of time at the end. There are people now who are experiencing that, 200 million of them, and they're not us. I don't worry about those guys. Because they're already doing it. And so, for them, it's not going to be that different when things kind of heat up. Because they're already today, on July 6th, having to make a decision. Am I going to, what am I willing to give up for the Lord? What am I willing to sacrifice? What is it going to cost me? Is that something I want to do or not? That's not the case for us. And so it just makes me wonder how many of us will be open to being turned. Or how many of us will be susceptible to our love growing cold. And again, that's not a judgment at all. It's just a question that I have. And I wondered about myself too. 
And what about me? And what about you? The core message of the gospel is one of grace. We're saved by grace through faith. And it's a wonderful message, and it's true. We're not saved by anything we do. Our good works don't earn us into heaven. They don't make us more acceptable to the Lord or anything like that, which is great. Sometimes I think we can misunderstand grace, though, and we think grace equals permissiveness. You've heard people say it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. And sometimes that's the way we treat our relationship with the Lord. Oh, he'll forgive me. He didn't really mean that. I can always ask for forgiveness later. And you can. His grace and his mercy are, we can't fathom the depth and the breadth and all of that of the love that God has for us. We read that. Or it's, we can't get it. It's massive. His mercy and his grace and his love towards us. And you're probably right. You probably can ask for forgiveness later. But at some point, you cross, we cross this line of presumption where we say, it doesn't really matter what we do. And God doesn't really care what we do. As long as I still have a breath left to ask for forgiveness, then everything's okay. And I think there, there's some truth to that. And then there's also this other side of the coin that says, it's better to have never started walking this way than to walk this way and turn around and start walking the other. And I don't know at what point we've turned around and started walking the other way. That's not for us to make those decisions, and that's not helpful to speculate for us or for other people if they've done that. But there's reality here that at some point, you've, you've kind of you've started walking in the other direction again. You've turned your back. Now, there's, that's different from doing this. I think there are a lot of, a lot of us do this. And we, some people, if you maybe were raised in a Baptist church, they call that backsliding where you slide backwards just like I'm doing. I'm still facing the Lord. I'm just being disobedient, and I'm doing this. That's different than doing this. And again, I'm not sure what the things are and how all that works, but there is a difference. And you can do this, and that. this is a lot of us. We walk forward, then maybe we slip back a little bit, then we start walking forward again. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about denying Jesus at some point. The gun's to your head and you say no. I'm not a follower of Christ. He's not the Son of God. No. That's when you turn your back. Again, and the thing for all of us is we don't live there. Nobody's going to put a gun to your head. It's ridiculous. We don't live there, but at some point we could, according to Revelation, we will get to that point, and it just makes me wonder, well, what about us now? And are we susceptible to being, to turning away from our faith? Is it likely that the love of some of us will grow cold? I was thinking, we've said this before, it's interesting to me that God often parallels his relationship with us to a marriage. And just like nobody sets out on their wedding day to have an affair, most Christians don't start off following the Lord saying, you know, I'm going to deny him. That's just that's part of my plan. In two years, I'm going to turn away. And I, we don't do that. And just like in a marriage, we don't set out to hurt our spouse. It's just gradually over time, our love begins to grow cold. And then at some point, we wake up. We wake up one morning, and it's gone. It, our heart is cold towards that person. I think the same thing happens in our relationship with the Lord. We don't set out to be apostates. That's nobody's goal in life. If you were going to do that, you'd never become a Christian in the first place. It doesn't get you anywhere. But at some point, some of us wake up and our love is cold towards the Lord. And we don't know what happened. And we maybe can look back and trace things and maybe there's some key events. But in general, it's just this kind of slow freezing of our heart 
the fire that we felt at one point just gradually, gradually dies down, dies down, dies down, and then it's just an ember. And then at some point, maybe we can't even find the flicker of the flame anymore. And I don't know kind of where, I don't know if that does anything for you or not. Again, it that's my biggest concern about us and the church in Cobb County and the church even in the United States is what happens to us. It's easy for us. And I don't want it to be hard. I told you all that last week. I'm fine dying before any of this stuff happens. I got no issues with that at all. I'm not looking to suffer. I'm not looking to be a hero. I'm not looking to be a mo- none of that. That's not on my to-do list. But what is, I don't want, I don't want to turn away. I don't want my love to grow cold. And I don't want y'all's to either. I don't want to be, I don't want that to happen. To y'all. Some of you don't even know your names. I don't want it to happen to you. And that's the thing as I read through this, all this end time stuff, that's the one that jumps out to me and says, warning, this is it for y'all. This is the one that can get y'all. You're probably not going to follow the Antichrist. You're probably not going to get the tattoo on your head initially. What's going to happen is your love's going to grow cold. And at that point, you're toast. you're, You're done. You can get moved around any different way because the fire that was in your heart for the Lord is gone now. And so you don't have that kind of passion, and I don't mean emotion, just that passion and that love to carry you through. I think that's the deal with tribulation. At some point, the pain of what you're experiencing is stronger than the love you feel for the Lord. And so we bail. And if our love for the Lord, if it is stronger than the tribulation, then we don't. And that's kind of the thing, and that's why it's so important that our love not grow cold. Because then it doesn't take much, or it takes less. And that's nothing about us having to work that up. Uh, Romans 5, 3 through 5 talks about perseverance and trial and hope and all this stuff. And it ends with the Father pours his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So there's this sense in which God will keep your heart warm. You don't have to do that. You don't have to fan your own flame. The Holy Spirit will do that in you if we'll respond to him. I want to pray for a minute and then I actually have more things to say, but let me, let's pray for a minute. God, I pray that uh, for all of us in this room, I pray that we would have hearts that would burn for you. God, that our love for you would not grow cold. Uh, Even today and tomorrow, just going through the regularness of life and the busyness and the mundane and the crisis, all the different things that kind of conspire against a heart ablaze for you. 
God, I pray that you would keep our hearts. Lord, I pray that uh, if there are any in this room who would say right now, my love is growing cold. Maybe not all the way there, but you're, you kind of feel the cold wind blowing in your heart. Maybe there's just a couple of areas, maybe even just one, and you would say that you're, it's cold. It's cold towards the Lord. It's cold towards other people, but there's an area that's cold. Um, if you'd slip up your hand, I'm going to pray for you. Nobody's going to look except me, but I just uh, need to know who I'm praying for. So if you would say that's you, there's an area in your heart where your love maybe has grown cold. Let me pray for you. Thanks. Thanks. Anybody else? Okay. And Lord, I pray especially for those who raise their hands. And I pray even now that the reality of Romans 5 would be true in their life. That you would pour out your love into their hearts by your Holy Spirit. God, that area that's grown cold, I pray that the fire of your presence would come. And that you would warm that place again. The fire of your presence, Lord, would warm that place again. That you would pour your love into that area of their heart by your Holy Spirit. That you would thaw that that has uh, grown cold. Amen. Verse 13 says this, But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. We've talked about this a few weeks ago. What God's looking for for us is perseverance, faithfulness, obedience to me. All those things are very, very similar. That's what he's looking for. Uh, James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. There's this idea throughout the New Testament that Kind of like, just cross the fence, just hang in there. That's kind of how you win. You, you just hang in there. You persevere. You stay faithful to the Lord. Again, it, the marriage analogy, you just you stay faithful. That's, that's winning with the Lord. Perseverance. You can see that again throughout the New Testament. Here Jesus says, the love of many will grow cold, but he who stands firm till the end will be saved. Not he who raises the dead, not he who walks on water, not he who sins the least, not who, he who leads the most people to Jesus. He who stands firm till the end. All those other things are great, but that's not the check mark. The check mark is, did you stand firm until the end? So that's the flip side of this apostasy thing. A lot of guys, their heart will grow cold, but some people won't. And that's the crowd we want to be in. We talked about that a few weeks ago. We don't want to be that seed that's planted in the shallow soil that grows up and looks great until the sun comes up. And then we wither and die because our roots are are shallow. The soil is shallow and our roots don't go down very deep and we can't handle the heat. That's not who we want to be. We want to be these guys who the seed is planted in good soil with deep roots and we can stand up under tribulation. And that's what Jesus says. Stand firm to the end and you will be saved. I was at um, Riverstone. That's our parent church. I was at their summer camp this week and it's a camp for rising seventh graders through rising college freshmen. And I had this little deal that I did in the morning and one of the mornings, kind of my thing was to try to get them to see high school in perspective, which most of you have gone through high school, and that's almost impossible until you're done. To have any perspective, and that's, it's almost impossible to have any perspective on high school until you graduate. Um, I went to Marietta High School, and then, like I said, I went to the University of Georgia, and I distinctly remember my first quarter of my freshman year, I was walking to a math class, and I walked past the baseball field, 
And they were doing tryouts, I think it was for walk-ons. And there was, I don't know how many guys out there, 15 or 20 guys out there. And this thought kind of popped into my head. Every one of those guys, six months ago, was a stud. Best guy on his team, most likely all-county. Pitchers feared them. Hitters didn't want to face them. They were the cream of the crop. Maybe two of them are going to be good enough to sit on the bench at Georgia. And the rest of them don't make it. It doesn't matter what they did last spring. The coach doesn't care. Out of these guys, again, who just six months ago were probably on the headlines of the, their local sports page every week, they're not even going to make it. And the ones that do are going to wind up sitting on the bench most of the time. And I remember that with me, and I was thinking about my own high school career and thinking, man, what it, not that any of it was bad, but did I miss it? Nobody asked me for pictures from my senior prom. Nobody asked me what my SAT score was. Nobody asked me how many activities I had listed after my name in the back of the yearbook. Nobody asked me about any of that stuff when I got to Georgia. They didn't care. It wasn't that any of that stuff was bad. It just, they didn't care anymore. And I wondered if I had spent all of my high school shooting for the wrong thing. And I was a Christian. I was a good guy. I didn't do anything wrong necessarily in high school. I was a good boy. And it wasn't like I was worshiping any of those things. I just think maybe I misunderstood what God was really looking for out of me and out of my life. And I wonder maybe the same thing for us. My theory is everybody has a definition of winning in their head. If I said, what does it look like for you to win? You've got something. And in high school, it's pretty easy to do that. Maybe it's a little more difficult as adults. But what does it look like for you to win? If you were going to win for the second half of 2008, what does that look like for you? For some people, it's a certain level of um, success in business or with money. For some people, it's certain things to happen for them family-wise. Maybe it's to get married. I don't know what it is for you, but what does it look like for you to win? And you've got it. You might not be able to verbalize it, but it's there. And my theory is everybody lives towards their definition of winning. Nobody wants to be a loser. We can go in there and ask those kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? And not one of them is going to say, I want to be a loser. They all have something that they want to do. And for them, it's winning. Now, they're six and seven and eight, and they don't really know. But I guarantee you, none of them say, yeah, I want to be a failure. I can't wait. That's not what, we, that's not what they're doing. And we don't do the same thing either. Now, some people do kind of resign themselves to failure, and I think that's because they're afraid of losing. And so we lower expectations so that we can't fail, but we're not going to, we don't have time to talk about that. Most people, if you're honest with your heart, there's something that you want to do, and for you, it's winning. So if I take me, and like I, if, you know, is winning for me having 5,000 people in this church? If it is, then we've got a lot of work to do, and I have a lot of work to do, and so I need to go find some land and a building, and I need to figure out how to get y'all from 100 to 5,000, and that's what I'm going to be leading towards, if that's my definition of winning. Whether I ever say it or not, if that's what's in my heart, on some level, that's the direction I'm going to live towards. And at some, that's, I'm driving towards 5,000 people for whatever that is, whatever that does in my heart. And the same thing's true for you. You've got winning in your head or in your heart, and that's what you're living towards. The question becomes, is your definition of winning the same as God's? Because if it's not, then you really don't win, even if you win. Because ultimately, he's the judge. It's just like I look back at my high school and think, you know what? High school was awesome for me. I wouldn't go back, but I loved it during my four years. But did I really win? On paper, maybe yeah. But in God's eyes, did I win? 
Or as I kind of, I was studying on chapter one and he was like, you really, you, you need to be in chapter two. You were looking at the wrong material. And I wonder the same thing in our life now. No matter, is your definition of winning the same thing as the Lord's? And let me tell you what God's is. God's definition of winning is obedience, faithfulness, perseverance. That's who is saved. That's who wins. He who stands firm until the end will be saved. Again, not he who does the most miracles, not he who leads the most people to Christ, not he who lives the most righteous life. He who stands firm to the end. That's his definition of winning. And if yours is anything else, then you're probably studying for the wrong test. And I would encourage you to line yours up with his. That's a hard question to answer, how do you define winning? But I would encourage you to dig into that. And if it's anything other than obedience and faithfulness to the Lord, I'd encourage you to really see if that lines up with what God has for you. Not that anything else, is, that other stuff is not bad at all. But ultimately, it's he who stands firm to the end who will be saved. We talked last week about the guys who come up to Jesus in Matthew 7 and are like, God, look at all these, Jesus, look at all these things we did. And we cast out demons in your name. We did all this stuff. And he says, get away from me. I never knew you. But we don't want that to be us. We don't want to get there and God say, well, that was great, all the stuff you did, but this is what I really wanted. So I would encourage you to think about your definition of winning. Last, this is verse 14. And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. That, to me, is, that's, a real, that's a signal that we'll know when Jesus is coming back. You can see there the heart of God. What he's saying is everybody needs a chance. Before, when Jesus comes back, the show's over. Curtain comes down, it's done. We're going to be judged and all that stuff, and it's final. Things are set in concrete. And what God is saying is, before I do that, everybody needs a chance to respond. Everybody needs to hear the gospel. Everybody needs a chance to respond to this loving invitation that I've given them. Everybody needs a chance to be saved from my wrath. Everybody. And so you see that Jesus isn't coming back until that's done. Now, we can get real technical and, well, who is everybody? And is it, you know, at what age can people respond? And every day people are hitting that. And how does that work? I don't know. All I know is... What Jesus says is, until the gospel's preached to the whole world, he won't come back. And the heart behind that is everybody gets a shot. None of us probably get too jazzed on statistics. Let me see if y'all can even see this picture. All right, this is 2008 stats. It's really hard to track. It's hard to track population, much less to track the gospel. What you can see, I don't know if y'all can read that in the things. Red are what are considered unreached or least reached groups. Um, I have a definition for that. Hold on one second. I think it's groups that have, hold on, um, if it's red, it's very few, if any, believers that less than 5% of the population are what are considered adherents um, to the gospel or people who actually believe the Bible are somewhere between 1 one-hundredth of a percent and 2%. Adherents, that's less strict than people who actually believe the Bible. It's probably questionable whether these guys who are adherents, you know, kind of where they are with the Lord. So that's all um, the unreached, and you can see the swath there, and that might not, I don't know if that looks like a lot to you, but those are some of the most populous countries in the world. India's in that, and China's in that. Let me see if I got stats here. It's at least a third of the world, population-wise, probably closer to half. The yellow is what's considered formative areas. That's where 
Um, there are very few, if any, believers, and um, the evangelicals are slightly higher than they are in the red, but things are still kind of growing. There's not a lot of churches in those areas. Green or blue, excuse me, are emerging areas. You have somewhere between 2 and 5% of the people believe the Bible, and churches are growing. And then the green, um, you have somewhere between 5 and 15% of the population are Bible believers, and their churches um, anywhere, there's different categories that I didn't put up there, but the, there's at least one church for every 10,000 um, people, which is not that great, actually, to have one church for every 10,000 people. But you can kind of see that, and again, that doesn't do a lot for us, maybe stat-wise, but you can see, you know, Jesus probably isn't coming back tomorrow based on that picture. But I was thinking about Cobb County, maybe that uh, works for you a little more than that. There's 680,000 people in Cobb County. One time, I actually did this. I went through and I counted all the churches in the Yellow Pages. I was an intern. I had a lot of time on my hands. So I counted all the churches, and there was about um, 400. But that's been several years. So let's just say there's 500. There's not, but let's just say there's 500. And all of them are not necessarily churches that you would say, yeah, that's where I want my folks who aren't Christians to go. You know, But let's just say they're all great churches. All these churches are on fire for the Lord, and there's 500 of them. The average church in the United States has 90 people in it. But let's just say in Cobb County, we live in the Bible Belt, that's 500. It's not. We don't have 500 here. But let's just say the average is 500. So let's say there's 500 Bible-believing churches, and there's 500 people in each church, and each one of those 500 loves Jesus and is on fire and all those things. You know none of those things are true, but let's just say they are. That still only gets us to 250,000 people. But, you know, we got some big churches around that are great. And let's say 50,000 people in our county go to North Point and Church of the Apostles and some of these other churches, and some of those guys are in house churches, so they didn't put their name of their church in the phone book, and some of them just, they don't go to church, but they love Jesus. And So let's just say there's 50,000 of those guys. There's not, but let's say there is. That still only gets us to 300, which means what? 380 of them aren't. Just in our Bible Belt, Cobb County, where we think, do you need another church? Seriously. There's one on every corner. And there's still not enough for the size of the population that we have. 680,000 people, easy half of them, don't care, don't know. Ty and Steph come from Australia. They were telling me, I think, the stats in Australia, was it 80% of the people are unchurched? Is that what you told me? 80% in Australia, something like that. And that's a Western country, and we sing a lot of songs from a church in Australia. 20% of the people are reached. That's not good. Jason and Felicia are going to go to China. They were in the red. Their numbers are a lot worse than our numbers. And our numbers aren't great. And none of that's depressing. It's not meant to do this. There's opportunity there. And Jesus is saying, I'm waiting on that. I'm waiting on that. That all those guys in red... And there's some people, if we could look at Cobb County, there are people in red in Cobb County, which you might not can fathom. How can people in Cobb County not have heard the gospel? But there's plenty that haven't. Plenty that haven't. And if we could blow Cobb County up, there would be people in red in Cobb County who are unreached. And that's not a guilt thing. That's an opportunity thing for us. When we started this church, one of the things that I prayed for us as a church is that we corporately that God would give us the gift of evangelism. If you look through spiritual gifts, that's one of the gifts. And that's an area where I really want to see us as a church. That's a huge kind of growing area for us, is to be a church that God will use to reach those guys in red. 
I'm not sure where we are on that yet, but that's an area where we need to go. If for no other reason, Jesus won't come back until they've heard. And we want him to come back because things are better when he's here than when he's not. And we need him to come back. And he said, not yet. There's too much red on the map. Too much red on the map. And again, that's not a guilt thing. That's an opportunity thing for us. There's a... Jesus' disciples and, and him are talking at one point and you know, they're, they're talking about evangelism and the, Jesus calls it the harvest. That's kind of this metaphor that he uses. He says these, these fields are, are ripe, they're ready. And the disciples are like, what are we supposed to do? And he says, pray for more workers. And we can be that. And it's not a matter of having to be a missionary and go to China or whatever. You can do that, but you don't have to. There's red here in Cobb County. There's probably red in your street. And for some of you, there's red in your family which isn't a guilt thing. It's an opportunity thing. Jesus says, I'm not coming back till everybody at least gets to hear. Now, if they say no, that's their deal. But they at least need to hear. And I don't mean driving by in a car over a megaphone. They need to hear in a way that they can respond to. They need to understand that God loves them and what his desires are for them. So that's Matthew 24, 9 through 14. That might have been a little jumpy to you. These are the takeaways for me. And all of those things, kind of the thread that runs through it to me is the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. Uh, if you look at all of these different things, and if you were to go through and look at what the Bible teaches the Holy Spirit does, He works in all of those areas. We already talked a second ago about Romans 5 and this idea of our love growing cold. And I don't know if that scares you or not, but that's not something that you need to try to Keep going on your own. You don't have to keep throwing coals on your own fire. God pours his love out into our hearts through his Holy Spirit. So all you have to do is do this and say, God, my heart's getting cold. I need the heat of your presence, the warmth of your presence, the warmth of your love. And he'll fan the flame in you. That's nothing that you have to work up on your own. We talked about tribulation and kind of how do we get through that. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14 says, Having believed... You are marked in Him with the seal. That's marked in Jesus with the seal. The promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. This idea of the Holy Spirit will seal us. He will keep us through tribulation. God's not going to leave you on your own and say, sink or swim, hope you can make it. See you on the other side. No. He walks with us through those things. He seals us. I don't know what that means, but I know that He, he seals us by His Spirit. And His Spirit's the one that carries us through the fruit of the Spirit. That's what we want to see come out of us when we're squeezed. It's not a matter of you learning how to make good stuff come out of you when bad things happen. It's a matter of the Holy Spirit coming out of you when bad things happen. And that's just a, and He'll do that. Apple trees produce apples. The Holy Spirit produces love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. You don't have to do that. It's His fruit, not yours anyway. Acts 1.8 says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You don't have to go out. All that red stuff, that's not your... You don't have to go out and try to turn that whatever color, green. The Holy Spirit will anoint us to do that. Trying to do ministry or evangelism, whatever, apart from the Holy Spirit is ridiculous. It's fruitless. It's pushing a rock up a hill. But doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Completely different scenario. Go back and read Acts if you want to and read what happens 
when people give themselves over fully to the Lord, when they open themselves up to being filled with the Holy Spirit and to be used by Him. It turns the whole world upside down, really in a pretty short amount of time. And so for us, I think that's the word. As we think about all this end time stuff and, gosh, are we going to, my love going to grow cold? Who's the Antichrist? And am I going to be deceived? It can be really intimidating to think about that. And you might just want to not come back for like six weeks until we're done. And that's, I like, I get that. That's the reason I didn't talk about Revelation this week. I just didn't want to get back into it. Honestly, I don't want to get back into it. I want to read about the great prostitute and try to figure out who that is and what she's going to do to us. I want to think about something else. Let's take a breather. And this is the breather. We don't do any of it on our own. That's never God's intention. He equips us with everything that we need to live life. He's on our side. He wants us to win. He wants us to be faithful till the end. And He sends His Spirit to enable us to do that. If we'll open ourselves to him. We read earlier Matthew 7, which talks about God giving good gifts uh, to anyone who asks. The parallel passage in Luke is in Luke 11, and it's a little more specific. This is Luke uh, 11, 11 through 13. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? We read that. Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? We read that. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And that's all you have to do is ask Him and He'll give you His Holy Spirit. If you feel like you're growing cold in some area, ask the Lord for more of His Holy Spirit to fan that flame in you. If you think, man, there's red in my neighborhood, there's red in my family, there's red at my job, those people need the gospel. Don't, you don't have to do that on your own. Ask the Lord. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Anoint me to do this work of evangelism. If you feel like, uh, I don't know about some of this deception stuff or whatever, John 16, 13 says the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. Ask, Father, send me your spirit so that I would know the truth if you're trying to figure things out. When it comes to ideas of perseverance, again, ask the Lord for all of these things. And the Holy Spirit is kind of God's agent in the world. He's the one that will do those things if we ask. So uh, we're going to worship here for a minute. You guys can come back up and do your deal. Um, we'll have ministry teams. And I would just simply this. If you would say, you know what, there's an area of my life where I need more of the Holy Spirit. That's basically saying, is there an area of your life where you need more of God? The Holy, then uh, we want to pray for you about that. It might be something we talked about. It might not be. But that's the simple invitation today. If there's an area where you need more of the Lord, we want to pray for you that God will do that because he longs to give the Holy Spirit to any who ask him. Y'all can stand and we'll pray.